Hello, beautifuls. Welcome back to Her Sexual Space podcast. I am your host, Janice Leonard, licensed professional counselor and sex therapist here in Texas and Colorado. Before we get into today's episode, please note that while we aim for relevant and relatable topics to explore, these episodes are not a replacement or a substitute for your own relationship with a mental and or sexual health professional. This episode is sponsored by Simple Practice. Running a private practice is rewarding, but it can also be demanding. Simple Practice changes that. This practice management solution helps you focus on what's most important, your clients. By simplifying the business side of the private practice, like billing, scheduling, and even marketing. Stick around for a special offer at the end of this episode. Welcome back to Her Sexual Space Podcast. I am your host, Janice Leonard, licensed professional counselor and sex therapist here in Texas and also in Colorado. On the podcast today, we have Dr. Stacy Sutton. She is a licensed physical therapist in Texas and is the founder of Sutton Health Advocacy. She is a board-certified women's health clinical specialist through the American Physical Therapy Association a certified lymphedema therapist, and a certified revital cancer rehabilitation specialist. Dr. Sutton specializes in and has a passion for treating people with a variety of diagnoses, including dyspareunia, pain with intercourse, pelvic floor dysfunction, pelvic pain, pelvic organ prolapse, pregnancy-related pain, postpartum pain, voiding dysfunction, pre- and post-mastectomy musculoskeletal pain, and those with osteoporosis. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Stacey Sutton. How are you today? I'm doing well. How are you doing, Janice? I'm doing good. So happy to have you on the podcast. I think you are maybe the missing piece (laughs) to my library of episodes, and I just can't wait for you to share with our listeners today. Are you ready for this? <laughs> I am. And I just wanted to say thank you so much for bringing me on. Yes. Well, thank you for accepting the invitation. I know you must be busy during these times. And thank you so much for just making the time to to chat. So show for our listeners um, just how you identify in the world, how you show up. Absolutely. So I like to uh, consider myself as a part of society. Uh, Yes, I am an individual person, but I consider myself a part of society and just want to make it better. And if I can better society by making sure people have better pelvic health, I think that I'll be accomplishing my goal. Mm -hmm. And I identify as a female and I am just about my relationship structure. I am probably in... I guess maybe <laughs> boring, but I am a heterosexual female in a monogamous relationship with a with a male. But I am I'm very open to all other um, identities, and I understand that my uh, preferences are not everybody's preferences, and I just mm-hmm. try to be very inclusive of everyone's, uh, how everyone wants to identify and um, how they want their roles to be identified. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for that. So before we get into today, because we're talking about uh, pelvic health, um, I want you to share with our listeners um, just what is the pelvic floor as we, we get into this conversation. Oh, yes. That's a great question. And so I, um, I would consider myself a pelvic floor physical therapist. And um, the pelvic floor is a group of muscles in the body that sit at the bottom of the pelvis. So 
they control um, urination. Uh, so they control like peeing and pooping and sex. And so mm-hmm. anytime I refer to the pelvic floor, I'm specifically talking about the, that set of muscles. Mm-hmm. Thank you. So what is pelvic health uh, physical therapy? So share with us, you know, it may be your professional story. How did you, <laughs> how did you come to identify like this? This was my niche, you know, because I am aware you can go into several different paths in physical therapy. Yes. So as far as what pelvic physical therapy or pelvic floor physical therapy is, is I like to say it has to do with the five P's. So mm-hmm. uh, peeing, pooping, pain, uh, pregnancy, and postpartum. And mm-hmm. it's, it's definitely there are more things that go into it than that. But it's just a, a short way uh, that I like to that I like to introduce this to people. Mm-hmm. And throughout my life, I've had um, I've had a lot of illness and quite a bit of pain, um, and a lot of surgeries as well. And I think mm-hmm. through my um, through my journey in life and through my challenges medically, I was introduced to uh, the concept of pelvic physical therapy and just kind of attached myself to it, and I thought that. I was very intrigued by it, and then I I found that the more I learned about the body and anatomy, the better I was able to uh, not only manage my own symptoms, but help other people manage theirs as well. Yeah, okay. And I guess that goes into additional training, education. Um, that was the next path. Yes. So for um, for physical therapy, I got a bachelor's degree, a four-year degree, and my degree was in sociology. So it's pretty mm-hmm. totally unrelated to anatomy, physiology. Um, but then I went on to do a, um, I did a doctoral program. It's a clinical doctorate, a three-year program. And then from there, uh, to specialize in pelvic health, um, you don't, you don't have to do this, but I did a, a 13-month residency and um, where I got just some additional training and uh, certifications to, to be able to, to really understand how to treat people with any pelvic issues, pelvic health mm-hmm. issues. And I, I worked in a hospital setting for a long time. And then I think COVID was almost a blessing in disguise. I, um, when COVID occurred, I was pregnant and I had just gotten pregnant. And I had some, I mean, at first I was, um, I was so worried and I ended up um, being, I guess, furloughed from my job. And it just worked out that um, I was, able to have a lot of time where I could really work on growing a business. And, um, and here I am. <laughs> so, wow. That is beautiful. Yeah. Wow. Thank you. Okay. So, so my next thing is how, how do people, how do persons and, and maybe women, because this podcast is, you know, get towards, you know, our ladies, how would they know if they need to see a pelvic floor physical therapist? And I know they've mentioned the P's, um, but what are some common things that show up there that someone might say, hmm, maybe I won't see my primary care physician for this. I will go see a floor physical therapist. Um, anyone who is having having issues, let's say uh, with um, uh, urinary incontinence. So let's that is where uh, you have a uh, loss of urine that's not on purpose, um, and uh, or like pain with urination or with uh, bowel movements if you have pain or constipation, and if you have any um, any like pain pain with sex that's um, I should say unintentional. You know, some people yeah. enjoy <laughs> having pain with sex, um, so I should say unintentional pain with sex. 
is mm-hmm. a, a reason to come see me. And then I do see women during pregnancy and postpartum. Um, mm-hmm. Now, anyone who is, uh, let's say, going through surgery, uh, male to female or female to male surgery, sometimes mm-hmm. they can benefit if some scar tissue issues can cause pain. And um, and so in in my practice, I I like to say I um, I specialize in treating vagina owners. So uh, <laughs> I guess rather than saying uh, females or women, although I do um, I do say women, but that includes all vagina mm-hmm. owners. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I love this. So maybe let's explore, you know, some of the issues vagina owners come with. You know, we've talked a little bit about painful sex. Um, yes. Vaginismus is, is a very common one. Um, how do you begin to, to treat some of that? That's a great question. And so the, the diagnosis of vaginismus, I'll, I'll explain um, a little bit about what that means to me. But also there's vaginismus and then there's a thing called dyspareunia. And dyspareunia is just a global term for pain with sex. Um, But recently, these two have kind of been lumped together in the same diagnosis, but they can be different. So with vaginismus, typically these are women who, um, when anything is uh, tempted to be inserted into the vaginal canal, whether that is um, a tampon or a sex toy, or a penis, or even like a doctor doing a gynecologic exam, mm-hmm. yeah. the muscle, yeah, the muscles just tense up to the point of preventing anything from being inserted inside. Mm-hmm. So that's the way my some of my patients will say that they have pain that evokes this response. And sometimes they'll say it's like the muscles have a mind of their own. They just close Mm -hmm. and don't want anything to come in. Um, Now, that's that's more of like what I see in treating people with vaginismus. Mm -hmm. Um, And then with dyspareunia, um, it's like you, I guess the body will allow things to enter into the vaginal canal, but it's painful, um, either Mm. right at the opening or deeper inside. And the way that I, um, my approach to treating this is to take just a very detailed history and figure out where it is um, in the cycle of uh, intimacy that the issues occur and we I make sure that my patients feel safe and comfortable um, and then there will get to a point where we may be able to do a pelvic exam and for some of my patients we just start with external factors so nothing you know inside the vagina mm-hmm. but we'll get to a point where maybe we just start off with a very small like even a q-tip and um, and gradually progress that to where mm-hmm. you get to where you can insert whatever, um, whether it be a tampon or whether you would like to be able to have penetration. Um, and mm-hmm. we just gradually increase that tolerance. Wow. How long can that take? Because I imagine <laughs> if we're starting yeah. off with a Q-tip and we're gradually, you right. know, increasing. Well, it sounds like it would be a long process. And I will say in some of my patients, it is. The majority of my patients, it takes maybe a month to two. Um, okay. And I mean, it can be a very quick process. So uh, one of my patients, we started off with a Q-tip and within a month, she was able to um, have successful penetration. Um, Mm-hmm. And uh, some of my other patients, it could even take up to a year. That's, I would say that's abnormal for it to take that long, um, or mm-hmm. I like to say uncommon rather than normal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But um, mm-hmm. everybody's different. 
And so if you are a person that maybe your journey is a little bit longer, that's still okay. The goal is to just make some very small incremental improvements and changes. Yeah. And I wonder too, because I'm thinking about, even as you talk about that one patient who took about a, a month or two months, um, I mean, it, it's the physiology part of it is important and also safety. You know, I, I'm thinking yes. of the relationship you have. That's an intimate relationship, <laughs> you know, yeah. and I think for someone who has experienced trauma, that in itself can be healing. Yes, that's a very important point. I don't expect people to open up to me immediately and tell me if they have any trauma in their past. I prefer to create a safe space where people will feel comfortable disclosing that information to me. Mm -hmm. Yes, exactly. I ask a lot of questions. I'm always, is it okay if I do this? Is this okay if I put my hands here? Um, And give people that freedom to make all of the decisions and telling people what to expect. Mm -hmm. A lot of my patients, their trauma comes even from a physician who um, attempted a, like a speculum exam and they didn't, you know, my patient may not have known exactly what to expect. And so even that can be a traumatic experience for people. And it is a process of just creating that safe space. So people feel like they're in control of their body. Yeah. I think that, that, that part is key. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think what you do in the office, that can be extended to how they do things with their partner or how they might approach maybe, you know, sex, right? After that, and even being able to to speak up. Mm -hmm. I I do encourage my patients to bring their partners into the room. Um, And so for a lot of my patients, we may use something that's called dilators. And they, Mm -hmm. it looks like, um, it looks like a dildo to be honest, but they are (laughs) medical devices that uh, come in increasing sizes. And a lot of my patients, uh, they use these with their partner. And so it's, I think if, if you're trying to achieve, let's say, um, penetration, it's, and I'm, I guess specifically, a lot of my patients are trying to achieve like penis and vagina penetration, where, this the penis it's this object that's on another person and you're completely not in control of it and it can be quite uh scary for people who have had pain with intimacy and so yeah. with uh with a dilator it's you're much more in control and it can be a great progression to lead to intimacy to lead to let's say penis and vagina penetration um or um, it can even be a way that you can be intimate with your partner um, that's less uh, that's less scary. Yeah. And even as you say that, I'm wondering, you know, what could, and of course we've, you know, we've highlighted that trauma could be part of it, but what, what else could lead? So I wonder if possibly having sex earlier or later in life, do you see any connections there, especially with, regards to painful sex? Yeah. Um, specifically with regards to um, to painful sex, I, I'm going to be honest. I, I don't know that I would say necessarily um, mm-hmm. that I've seen anyway, like uh, people, let's say, who have sex younger versus later tend to have more pain. Um, if I had to, if I had to go one direction, I would, I would say, and again, you know, I'm not saying this is a definite trend, but I tend to see more pain, maybe even in people who who wait longer <laughs> to to be intimate. And I don't know if that may have to do with people who tend to wait, let's say, until they're older, or um, people who even uh, may wait for marriage. I think tend to have some, um, a lot of 
religion in their background that may impact their beliefs about sex. And, um, and that could lead potentially to more pain depending on your beliefs. If you believe that it's dirty or it should just happen during for procreation or that if you believe it's an extremely like painful process for the hymen to break and that always happens the first time you have sex, these beliefs I think can tie into pain. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I mean, that shows the connection between, you know, the, the power of the brain, right? If we yes. have internalized these messages, exactly, obviously there will be a block in our response, you know, to yes. that. Absolutely. And, and, and I will say in a lot of my patients, let's say who have trauma in, in the face of abuse, um, from like from a, a person close to them, um, either early on in their life or later, and those um, I'd say those patients typically tend to um, have pain with intimacy. Are and again, this is a very generalized, and I, I certainly don't want to exclude anyone here who may not fall into this category. Mm-hmm. But I think that. Um, may impact the desire to seek arousal, if that makes sense. So some some people may come to me and may say, I want to be intimate in a pleasurable way with my partner. And others, it may be, um, you know, I need to be able to have a child or I need to be able to get through an exam. And so I really try to be mindful of that and individualize that care for each person. For sure. For sure. I love that. Okay. So I wonder what can, and, and you didn't mention the Q-tip and that was just, like you said, an individualized care right there. Um, <laughs> what can a, a patient, so in general, what can they expect from an initial uh, visit and follow-up sessions? Great question. So most people, I always discuss this with uh, my patients and just make sure that they're on board. But I do attempt on the initial visit to do what's called a connective tissue assessment. So I look at the the connective tissue or like this, how well the skin moves over your abdomen and inner thighs. Um, Because for people who have like tight connective tissue, it can be like um, if you've ever worn like a really, really tight pair of pants where like maybe you even had to use a hanger to put in the zipper to get them on. It's like, (laughs) if you have tight connective tissue, it's like wearing that all the time and that can create pain. Um, And then um, I do, uh, most of my patients do an internal uh, vaginal exam, muscle exam. Um, And, but I, for anyone who's uncomfortable with this, uh, I just ask, you know, what would you be comfortable with? So we may just start with external, where um, I apply gentle pressure to the muscles of the pelvic floor externally. And then um, we gently progress to an internal pelvic muscle exam. And there's no speculum or stirrups. I just use one gloved finger with lubrication to assess if there's tenderness of the muscles. Okay. And in follow-up sessions, we may work on releasing muscle, releasing the connective tissue, uh, releasing the muscles intra or extra pelvically, and um, and bring in dilators into our session as well. Good. So, how many sessions would you say that can take up to? And I know it varies, but standard. I wonder what. I think standard is probably four to eight. Um, Okay. And. There are uh, some of my patients may have like chronic pelvic pain, and for those people, I may see them once a week or once every other week for years, on and off. Mm-hmm. Good. So I wonder. So what are some exercises women can do at home to support their pelvic health? What are some of your go tos? Yeah, I so. For typically for people with vaginismus or pain with intimacy, 
they tend to have overactive pelvic floor muscles. And a lot of my exercises are geared towards relaxing the pelvic floor. And most of my patients, the first exercise I give is just diaphragm breathing, where you'll just lay in a comfortable position and try to inhale, uh, not necessarily a deep breath, but just a different breath where you inhale and let the abdomen and that pelvic area release and then just breathe out. And that relaxation coupled with the movement can really do a lot for relaxing the pelvic floor. Yeah. And I do give a lot of my patients Kegels, but not in the sense of trying to make them strong. I give it to them in the sense of trying to get blood flow and mobility to the pelvic floor muscle. And um, for healthy people, any kind of exercise would be great to do if you don't have Mm -hmm. pelvic issues. And so I think, you know, if you don't have any issues, go ahead and do Kegels, do your ab workout, your aerobic activity. I think that's great. Um, But if you experience pain in doing that, that may be a good time to seek out the help of a pelvic PT. Mm -hmm. Good. Good. Glad you stated that. Also, I know there's this trend. I can't remember how many years ago it came out, but the uh, vaginal weights. Is that something you recommend um, for women? I will say I don't usually uh, have people use them for, I think, especially, I'm not saying it's a bad idea, but for women um, with pelvic pain or women Mm -hmm. who tend to have overactive pelvic floor muscles, I don't give the vaginal weights just because I want them first to focus on being able to release. Mm -hmm. But I have given them to patients, especially uh, anybody who wants to strengthen their pelvic floor. So maybe women who, um, if, if they feel like maybe everything is weak down there or they have some incontinence, although Some people with incontinence do have overactivity, but anyone with a weak pelvic floor, if you want to strengthen it, I would say go for it. And if you experience pain, then seek out a pelvic floor PT, but otherwise they're totally safe to you. I just uh, don't use them that much in my practice, but I've used them myself after I had my baby (laughs) Um, and I thought they were, I mean, I really, I thought they were very helpful. So, Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. And how long, and I wonder like how many, I'm guessing they come in different sizes. I haven't used them, but I have seen other influencers talk about, um, you know, using them regularly. I wonder what was that experience like? I know some women are interested in exploring that. And I wonder if you can maybe share um, your own experience and, and how that may have helped you too, after you had a baby. Yes. So after, um, I mean, I, I think all women after they have a baby should at least have a few sessions of pelvic PT. But I, um, I just felt like after I had a baby, it was, I didn't necessarily feel weak, but I felt like I had a hard time connecting to my pelvic floor and that it was difficult to even uh, kind of do a Kegel. And, and so when I use the vaginal weights, when you put them inside, it's a little bit easier to know if you're engaging your pelvic floor. So if you're contracting or doing a Kegel correctly, because there's an object inside the vagina that you can contract around. And I feel like using them was helpful in, in helping me reconnect with my pelvic floor. So once I knew that I was uh, engaging my pelvic floor correctly, then I felt comfortable uh, doing other exercises. Yeah. Are there any benefits other, I guess, any other, well, you've mentioned a few, but any other benefits (laughs) to seeing a pelvic floor uh, physical therapist after pregnancy, during and after pregnancy? So I wonder, do you recommend it during? I do recommend it during, uh, depending on the comfort level of your pelvic PT and just whatever your you and your doctor are, or I should say health professionals are comfortable with, pelvic PT can help you 
with pain during pregnancy, and it can also help you prepare for birth. And so a lot of my patients, once they get to a certain point in pregnancy, we work on releasing the pelvic floor and we work on different pushing positions, Mm. making sure that you have that mobility to get into those positions and that you know how to push. That's what um, a lot of women I see are like, you know, I didn't even know how to push when I was having my baby. (laughs) And so we, we work on optimizing like the delivery. Mm-hmm. Yes, I feel like you work closely with a lot of different disciplines. Well, sexual health, it's all sexual health. <laughs> and reproductive I think health I do. Too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it is. It's really, it's really rewarding because I can work with birth professionals. I can work with mental health professionals, um, colorectal doctors, and even like mm-hmm. oncologists. I see a lot of people during and after cancer and oncology treatment. And so I, I love, I love my profession. It's, it's yeah. really, it's really cool. All the people it's a fun space. It yeah. is. And a good yeah. stream of referrals. <laughs> exactly. And I, I think that most people just would really benefit too from that multidisciplinary approach that you oftentimes don't have pain with sex without having, so there's the physiological, the muscle part of it, but then there's also the mental aspect of it, mm-hmm. which are, yeah, yeah, like your previously held beliefs, the anxiety around it, and that's not my specialty. Um, and that's where I really think just, collaborating and and having that interdisciplinary approach is key in recovery. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's why I need connections like you. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Same here. Yeah. So I wonder as parents, and I, I, you know, I don't know, I'm not sure exactly how that applies to, to children and teens, but what can we do to support our little girls as they're becoming adults, um, to have healthy pelvic issues (laughs) (laughs) or healthy pelvic health. (laughs) You know, one thing that I, that I've heard of a lot in some of my patients, and this is particularly patients with bladder issues is, um, oh, I, I always would go just in case because, you know, my, my mom always made me go before we left the house. And um, I think that could potentially lead to a lot of pelvic floor issues. Now, Mm. of course, you don't want to be like always stopping, especially with COVID and the lack of public restrooms that we have. Um, But I think just giving, giving your kids enough time to go to the bathroom where we're not rushing them. Um, so, because if you are what I like to call people, like, are you an impatient peer or pooper? Um, mm. And so you want to just, even if you give yourself or your, your child, uh, where you're not rushing them, say, okay, what, you know, take another 30 seconds and really, you know, are you done going to the bathroom? Um, I think that's something easy that we can do. Mm-hmm. And it almost seems like that is key during the potty training years, but it doesn't often extend to, <laughs> you yeah, know, all the exactly. kids. <laughs> that is, that's a really good point. Yeah, we, yeah. you know, and I think just the way that um, our, our school system too, I think, you know, people have just a few minutes between classes yeah. and and we're just like, you have to wait in line. And if you're late to class, you get punished. And if you raise your hand to go to the bathroom in the middle of class, you get punished. And yeah, yeah it's like, but that is that is a physiologic process that every person goes through. Mm-hmm. So I really feel like kids shouldn't be punished for <laughs> having to go to the bathroom. Mm-hmm. I-, I love that, you know, because, yeah, there's definitely a connection there. Yeah, for sure. So I was wondering, I know we talked a lot more about um, vaginal health, 
but rectal health. So I recently had an episode on butt stuff. And I just I heard wanted... that podcast. It was so interesting. <laughs> yeah, it was so fun yeah. to do. I wonder if, well, now that you said you've heard it, if you had any tips based on what you see show up in your office around uh, maybe anal, anal sex or, you know, any, you know, if someone is exploring that for the first time. Yeah, I, you know, I, I do get that question a lot and you guys address this in the podcast, but a lot of my um, patients are scared to do it because they think, yeah, that they're going to be like incontinent afterwards. And um, it is totally safe to have butt sex. (laughs) (laughs) I do, um, for people who have never had anal sex, I do like to explain what to expect. Like if, so if you've had vaginal sex, but you haven't had anal sex, I just go over a little bit about how it's important to go slower because the external anal sphincter just reflexively contracts when it's stimulated. So, you know, if you try to insert anything, you're going to get this reflexive, almost like spasmodic contraction. So basically Mm -hmm. where your butt just like squeezes closed. Mm -hmm. And it's important to just stay still for a second and let that happen for a little bit before you try to like insert the penis a little bit further or mm-hmm. an even object further, I should say. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and go slow at first because it's, it's just, it's a little bit different ball game yeah. and use plenty of lubricant. So, you know, if you're used to vaginal in- intercourse, you may not have needed lubricant, but you definitely want to use lubricant when it comes to anal sex. Just go a little bit slower. Awesome. Well, thank you for that. Oh, and you don't want to do anal sex and then vaginal sex without, um, you know, cleaning. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder on the flip side, what are some, because I often wonder if being with someone with a larger penis Mm -hmm. can also affect, you know, our, you know, our cervix, our pelvic floor. I wonder, do you have yeah. any <laughs> any <Yeah>. personal um, <laughs> opinions or professional opinions yeah. on that? <laughs> yeah, this, uh, this is what I like to. Now, there are, I mean, there are definitely just anatomically, there are some penises that are just they're going to hurt um, without modifications, right? Mm-hmm. Um, now, when we become aroused, the the vagina does expand and goes, uh, and and our uterus comes up into the abdomen, so the vaginal canal gets bigger. So I would say, you know, if you are going to be intimate with someone with a larger penis, um, to give yourself time to get aroused a little bit mm-hmm. more, maybe than than you would uh, with someone with with a smaller penis, mm-hmm. and. The other thing that I like to tell my patients, if I have a patient who's telling me that they um, that they think that their pain with sex is because their partner has a big penis, I will ask them if they've always had pain with sex with the same partner. And a lot of times my patients will say that no, they didn't used to have pain, but now they do. And with the same partner. And so then I will say, okay, you know, that's when you should probably seek out pelvic PT because it may not be because your partner has a large penis. That could be something that has changed with your anatomy. And, um, and then I can make uh, modifications as well to, to help improve that pain. Hmm. What would that look like? Yeah, so sometimes it's um, there's this thing that you can get called the O nut, where uh, the man will put this on his penis so it doesn't go as deep inside. Oh yeah, I've heard of that. Yeah, um, there's also it's a lot too um, about the way the penis enters the vagina. So mm. uh, sometimes it's um, the penis owner, I should say, has to slow down a little bit where. Uh, and almost like gently spread the labia and spread that tissue uh, and then gently go in and maybe come out a little bit and then gently go in 
as this process rather than just kind of going all the way in at one time. Mm. And, 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 you know, a lot of men, uh, they may not know that. And even a lot of women may not know that that's a, that's a modification that can be made to, to decrease pain. Yeah. But how would they know? How would they know if we don't have (laughs) comprehensive sex ed classes? Like that is good information, but how come no one told me that? (laughs) Exactly. Well, even I have a a very short, brief story, but when I was in uh, college, I wanted to do a like very, not sex ed, but even just like pelvic education for kids. Mm -hmm. And, you know, here in Texas, it was like, oh, no, we just do abstinence-only education. It's like, you can't expect people to know then if, I mean, we're not getting it anywhere and you know, we're not getting it in school and our cultural norms may not be to discuss this. Mm-hmm. So I don't think, I don't think people would know that. That hurts me. That hurts me. <laughs> I know. I get so emotional about that. Yeah. Me too. It's that's how everybody on this earth got here, but now we need to like put shame on it. It yeah. does not make any sense to me. No, yeah, no. yeah. none at all. Yeah, and I'm I'm not saying you go to you know nine year olds and start talking about right. this, but I think naturally as we go through puberty, our bodies are preparing for us to reproduce. <laughs> You know, and I think that is a good time to start having some small conversations about what that looks like. And even especially doctors who are meeting with teens who might be sexually active. Those are things that I would want to. Yeah. So if you're going to do it, has some ways to do it, you know, so you're not, you know, suffering through it (laughs) because, you know, this. Yeah. <laughs> you had asked me earlier, you know, what are some ways we can support our pelvic health and our children? Mm-hmm. And I would say if you're comfortable with it, when your child does reach puberty, um, to have an open conversation with them. And it doesn't have to be, you know, super open if you don't want to be, but um, just letting them know some things going on in their body. And if you're not comfortable with it, maybe ask a family member or a friend um, to just let, I mean, I see a lot of people who have that shame. And I think that it's important to, to have this open conversation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I have started it a little bit. I have a 12 year old, so we're slowly wow. getting there. Um, so we're, we've done tidbits yeah. You know, so as he as he lets us, we'll go more into it. Okay. Um, but yes, it's definitely an open conversation that we we have. Yeah, that's wonderful. I I I see like so many parents too who may be like, "Well, when my child's ready to have sex, they'll talk to me about it." And I'm like, if they're in the heat of the moment with their partner and wherever they may be, I don't think they're going to be like, "Let me call my mom and." see what she thinks about this. You know, it's just going to happen. Uh, so I think to have those conversations on the front end is, I mean, and I, I mean, my son is only 15 months. So, you know, I am, I am taking lessons from you here too, that uh, to have these conversations earlier rather than later. Yeah. And, and for a baby that might look, the toddler that might look different, you know, but you yeah. definitely want to normalize all of their body parts. You don't want to call right. it funny names. Um, yes, you know, exactly. And boundaries, yeah. you know, even letting them know, oh, I'm taking off your diaper now. You know, mommy's going to wipe you. Like little things like that. Yes. Just build, building that for them. I Yeah, I agree. I mm-hmm. I was like trying to think, you know, because my son, he'll like, want to to grab his penis which is I Mm -hmm. think a totally normal thing and I'm like you know how do I like explain to him once he gets to where he's going out in public that like yes that is yours but you Mm -hmm. can't grab it in public right Mm -hmm. yeah and just how you said it you know you can do it in your bedroom (laughs) in the bathroom but we don't do it because I had to do that with mine too 
we don't do yeah. it in the living room. And there was a time, right. you know, he went to his bedroom just so he can play with his, his penis. And he's so little. But, and, yeah. and I am also, I am the foreskin mom. So <laughs> it could have something yeah. to do with that. So he still has his foreskin and he wants to play with it sometimes. I'm like, you just don't do it in the living room or the, yeah. the dining room. So you go to your room or the bathroom. And he's understood yeah, that. That's your body. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But it's fun. It's important it's to fun. talk about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And that's where it starts, you know, taking away that shame. Yeah. Right. And that's I, when I mean, they can was, talk to you, you know, more yes, when other things exactly. are happening. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I was very, I will say, very fortunate in that my mom was very open with me um, from a young age about. This is don't ever let people touch you here. Um, and then once I hit puberty, having discussions with open discussions about my period and about sex. Mm-hmm. And I know I'm, I'm very fortunate that my mom was uh, very open with me about that. Yeah. And But I know a lot of uh, people, uh, they, their parents may not have those open conversations with them. And so you're not expected to know like, oh, this is, how you can make it easier for the penis to go in the vagina, right? Mm-hmm. It's, um, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Or any kind of intimacy. And, I mean, do our parents even know? <laughs> so that's another thing too. Like, exactly. do they even know to tell us? Right. No, that's a very good point. And I think, mm-hmm. you know, they, they may not. So I think too, we can have a little grace with our parents if, you know, maybe they felt uncomfortable <laughs> talking to yeah. us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Awesome. Well, this was certainly a lovely discussion. Are there any other tips um, for our ladies on ways they can um, prioritize their pelvic health? Yeah. I think that um, you've asked me so many great questions. Um, and I do see that you have another podcast on vulvar care, which I, I haven't been able to listen to yet, but I bet that has a lot of uh, good tips. Um, yeah. I, I just say, you know, give yourself, even if it's an extra 30 seconds to go to the bathroom, mm-hmm. um, allow yourself to relax if you can <laughs> in today's mm-hmm. society. Uh, and it's tough to relax sometimes, but just give yourself a little bit of time to relax and, um, mm-hmm. take care of not holding that stress in your pelvic floor. Yeah. Yeah. Some of us hold it there. Yeah, that's why I, I I love that you brought up, you know, just the diaphragm um, breathing. Um, I definitely mm-hmm. also would suggest, um, you know, stretches, even if you don't want to do a whole yes. weight training or, you know, you don't want to be in the gym. Uh, there are stretches that you can do at home. That yes, really that's help. a great point. Um, inner thigh stretches are great. Mm-hmm. Um stretches for the glutes you can I mean you can google with YouTube now you can google (laughs) yes adductor (laughs) and glute stretches and those Mm -hmm. are are great just to release the hips and those muscles to connect to the pelvic floor Mm -hmm. yeah yeah thank you for bringing that up yeah yeah those are some good ones and my my personal trainer that I had last year, she would take me and like hide me in a room in the gym so we can do that. Because she said like, if I did it out there on the mat, like it would, you know, she didn't want like the guys looking at me weird. (laughs) But those (laughs) those exercises were good. And I need her to send me some of them because I felt really good, like the different stretches, but they were specific to the pelvic area. Oh, nice. Yeah, I... When I worked in a hospital setting, uh, like in a large gym, that's what I would do with my patients. I'd be like, okay, now for these exercises, we're going to go into a private room. Yes, um, exactly what you, you know. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. Awesome. And if I can get some of those, I will also add them because um, I know it's we're still in a pandemic and some people might be avoiding the gym. So just some few exercises that they yes. can do. I will add that to the the show notes okay yeah do you want like a video or just that would be helpful too if you have some of those okay yeah Yeah, i can always tag that Mm -hmm. okay i'll send those to you 
Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Stacey. I love this conversation and um, I look forward to talking to you some more as we explore more in that space. Yes. Thank you so much, Janice, for just this opportunity to speak about pelvic health. Yeah. Yeah. And I look forward to uh, having more conversations. For sure. Same here. And I wonder, where can our our um, listeners connect with you? So if they're in Texas, how can they connect with you? Yes. So you can go to uh, my website, which is uh, Sutton Health Advocacy. So S-U-T-T-O-N Health Advocacy, A-D-B-O-C-A-C-Y. And um, there's some resources on my website. You can connect with me there. And um, yeah, I would love to hear from anyone. And if you connect with me there, I will reach back out to you very shortly. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Bye-bye. Thank you too. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and you would like to support the podcast, please share it with others, post about it on socials, and leave us a rating and review. To catch all the latest from me, you can check out our new website at www.sexualspace.com or you can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Her Sexual Space and Her Sexual Space Podcast. Thanks again, and I'll see you next time. Bye. This episode has been sponsored by Simple Practice, the leading practice management platform for private practitioners everywhere. More than 100,000 professionals use Simple Practice to power telehealth sessions, schedule appointments, file insurance claims, market their practice, and so much more, all on one HIPAA-compliant platform. Get your first $100 towards your first month of Simple Practice when you sign up for an account today. This exclusive offer is valid for new customers only. Go to www.simplepractice.com slash hersexualspace to learn more.